Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to Tim Cook on the history of medical treatment and care of Canadian soldiers during the First World War. The book is entitled Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War. The book was published by Alan Lane, an imprint of Penguin Random House in 2022. Tim Cook is Chief Historian and Director of Research at the Canadian War Museum. Canada's top military historian, he has won multiple awards for his books on Canadian military history and is a two-time winner of both the J.W. Defoe Prize and the C.P. Stacey Award in Canadian Military History for four of his books. He is a member of the Royal Society of Canada and received the Order of Canada for his contributions. He was also a past recipient of the Governor General's Award for Popularizing History, known as the Pierre Burton Award. Tim, welcome to Witness to Yesterday. Thanks, Greg. It's great to be here with you. to say that this is one of the most well-written yet scholarly histories that I've read in a long time. I'm really quite envious of your ability to find what I think is a really delicate balance between research expertise on the one hand and an arresting narrative on the other. Can you tell me, just give me some tips on how you actually do this? Well, thanks, Greg. And and uh, so great to speak to you as a scholar and, and one who has served Canada so well in so many ways. Um, you know, I'm lucky. I'm a public historian. As, you, as you've said, I work at the Canadian War Museum. And in that job, you know, my job is to present history to all Canadians. It's not just to academics. And so we think about uh, how we're going to address our visitors, our many visitors. And I I think that's had an impact uh, clearly on how I write. Um, My first two books were academic books, but then I was able to switch over and and write, I suppose, more popular history. Now, at first, Greg, I didn't like that term much because I think, as you know, in the academy, uh, popular is seen almost as diminishing the history, getting rid of all the complexity. There's no analysis. And that's just not true. You, You can write engaging Uh, narrative-driven stories uh, are complex history underpinned by fierce research. I think I have about a thousand footnotes and about 800 of them are primary sources. Um, but, But the story matters and people matter. And I have always believed it's important to hear from those eyewitnesses to history. Uh, I read uh, thousands of letters and diaries and memoirs. And that's really, that's important, I think. If we want to engage with a wider audience beyond just academics, uh, you need to write uh, for them. And so I've tried to do that for my last 10 or 12 books, and uh, I suppose I've had some success. Well, you certainly have. So what motivated you to research and write this particular book? Yeah, yeah, great. Thanks. Uh, 
all books have their own history, don't they? And I think um, I, I'm always fascinated to talk to people uh, like yourself or others of what motivated them to write. Was it a book that they went in search of or did the book find them? Um, this one was motivated by a couple of things. Um, you know, I, I'm I've written about the First World War in multiple books, and I and this was an area that had always interested me, medical care and the contradictions of sending soldiers into battle to be maimed or killed or to kill and to maim uh, the enemy, uh, and then to have other doctors and nurses care for them and try to uh, ease their pains uh, and their ravaged minds, but then ultimately to try to send them back into the line again. So that had always interested me. This is a COVID book. I wrote it, I uh, started writing it in April of 2020. Um, I had another book I wanted to work on, but all the archives were closed and I had enough material to begin the process. And, and, and I think COVID allowed me to um, look at the history here with new eyes. Um, the history doesn't change, of course, right? But we were living through this awful period, the importance of preventive medicine. And I began to see that in the records, you know, how, why hadn't the Canadian forces in the trenches, as soldiers living a troglodyte existence in dirt and deprivation, unburied corpses, disease, uh, prevalence uh, possibly everywhere. Why didn't they dissolve into a diseased mob? And they didn't. So that that motivated me. And I guess thirdly, um, I, I had passed through a, a battle with cancer, um, several battles, in fact, over many years. And I, I, you know, I'd been in hospitals a lot, and I got to know doctors and nurses. And I thought at one point, geez, if I survive this this battle with cancer, it'd be nice to write a book that I can hand over and give to people as a as a small token of thanks. And yeah, I'm talking to you, so I did survive. That's good news. And the book is book is out. Well, that's great. In your analysis of Canadian casualties during the war, you refer to the ratio of soldiers killed to those injured. Uh, it seems to me based upon what you've written, that the ratio was much higher in the earlier years of the war relative to later on. Why was this the case? Yeah, yeah, you're right. And and I mean, the case is, uh, if you were wounded in the head or the gut early in the war, it was a death sentence. There was almost nothing that could be done to save you. Um, wounds were infected in on, along the Western Front. But the doctors um, turned their agile minds to um, finding solutions to saving their patients. And I, and I recount this in the book, and I guess it's a major theme that runs through the book, this idea of learning in this brutal environment. And uh, I recount that uh, surgical innovations and um, other medical innovations, the use of x-ray machines and blood transfusions, which you may want to talk about later, um, uh, structural changes, moving surgical care forward. All of this saved soldiers' lives. And by the last year of the war, you're right, more soldiers were being saved from the doctors who were able to really apply themselves in this very strange laboratory of death and destruction. So who made up the Canadian Army Medical Corps and the Canadian Field Ambulance units at this time? The pre-war Canadian Army Medical Corps had about 20 officers, and by the end of the war, it had 20,000 officers and men 
who um, who were drawn from civilian society. These were citizen soldiers, just as the Canadian Expeditionary Force was, this massive um, coming together of Canadians. Uh, about 620,000 served in the war, so about one in three adult males. And so just as they were drawing across Canadian society, um, uh, farmers and clerks and students and all regions, all classes, almost all religions, they were also drawing in doctors and nurses. And as I recount in the book, about half of Canadian doctors served in uniform and about a third of the nurses. And, um, you know, they're absolutely crucial to, um, to serving the Canadian soldiers overseas. But, you know, it's an, I, I only touch on this a little bit, but there was a great doctor shortage. They called it a doctor famine um, in Canada um, during the war. And that was one of the unintended uh, consequences of pulling all of these uh, doctors from largely rural communities and from the universities. Almost all of the universities sent their faculties of medicine overseas. And all of that really just had a, a, a tremendous impact in changing Canada. And that, too, is a theme I, I examine in the book. Your book made me truly understand what the stretcher bearers went through. They were really phenomenal. I mean, the the kind of work that they did, I found absolutely amazing. Now, how were the stretcher bearers selected? Because they came from regular regiments. Some of them were from the field ambulance units, but why were they selected? And uh, you say they earned the respect of frontline infantry the hard way. And I'd like you to describe to us what you mean by that. Yeah, thanks, Greg. Um, yeah, the stretcher bears, there were generally two types. There were about 16 a corps in a battalion. So a battalion was about a thousand men and it had a medical officer. And he was a bit like what a general practitioner would be doing today. He was caring for all of the types of wounds and illnesses of the soldiers. But he also trained the stretcher bearers, and they were the ones who went out. They were, in effect, battlefield medics. They were the ones forced to follow the infantry over the top in the major battles. And they were incredibly brave. And I, you know, I was able to recount in the book through their letters and diaries, their own eyewitness accounts, agonizing accounts of moving forward from shell crater to shell crater, uh, patching up soldiers, uh, giving a little bit of rum to another, a cigarette, uh, which all the soldiers smoked, interesting to see, uh, moving on to the next guy. They suffered heavy casualties because they're moving across this shell-pitted battlefield with uh, sniper fire and machine guns and chemical agents and indiscriminate mortar bombs and everything else. Um, but they're the ones who are who are really that front line of care. And then there are secondary also stretcher bearers who are largely involved in carrying out the wounded. Um, and they, they too had to know how to treat a, a man who was dying in front of them from traumatic shock. They knew had to know how to bandage him up. But carrying, Greg, carrying the stretchers back, I'd never thought about that. I've seen the photographs and the paintings, but they often had to carry a, a wounded man 
two, three, four kilometers over this, you know, apocalyptic battlefield and and all the fire. It It was really astonishing. And so those stretcher bears, they are the ones who are bringing back the wounded guys who can't walk. Um, and um, that's the race against time. You've got to get the wounded soldiers back to the doctor so that they can begin surgery. You uh, have already alluded to it, but there were there was the use of different types of poison gas, a major feature of the Great War. Uh, can you quickly describe what types of lethal and harassing gas were used and what effect that they had on the body? And how were the victims of gas treated throughout the war? Yeah, this is the war where chemical agents, gas warfare is prevalent almost everywhere from about 1916. The Canadians had the misfortune, in fact, of facing the first chlorine gas gas cloud, which the Germans unleashed on the 22nd of April 1915, this five-kilometer death cloud that rolled through two French divisions to the north and also got the Canadians. And chlorine... Uh, listeners here can think about being in a pool and feeling that burning feeling in your lungs. Well, this was weaponized and so much deeper and stronger. It burned out the soldiers' lungs. Uh, And the doctors at first had no way to treat this. Of course, most of them uh, had no idea what was happening. It took time to to try to understand these wounds. Later in the war, they could they could uh, give oxygen to soldiers with gas lungs, but there was a constant evolution of deadlier gases throughout the war, including um, the, the worst gas, uh, mustard gas, introduced in the summer of 1917, again by the Germans. And this gas burned the soldier's skin and caused these horrific blisters, and it blinded them. Some of the listeners may think of some of those images of soldiers being led from the battlefield with their eyes bandaged. Luckily, it was often temporary blindness, but many, many of the veterans suffered a permanent blindness. Others had damaged eyesight. Uh, Others still permanent lung damage. Those terrible blisters uh, became infected. And as I was writing this, we were talking about, you know, me researching and writing during COVID. I I, I couldn't help but think of our, our doctors and nurses dealing with COVID patients and possibly being infected because for mustard gas, they were living weapons. Um, their fumes coming off their uniform would gas the nurses and the soldiers caring for them. Again, this uh, series of parallels from 1918 to 2020 or 21, um, uh, you know, different time periods, but um, always of interest to me. And the the wounds to gas were among the most terrifying during the course of the war. Your description of the Passchendaele battlefield in Belgium with its torrents of mud is truly horrifying. And so I'd like you to describe for us how casualties were actually evacuated for care in the sea of mud and the complications that were caused by both the muck and the cold. Yeah, battlefields like the Somme uh, in in late October, November 1916, or Passchendaele a year later in October, November of 1917, where the Canadians were attacking forward over this uh, uh, wasteland of destruction, uh, craters that, you know, uh, could be 20 feet deep, filled with water and muck, unburied corpses along the 
the front of soldiers who had died. Uh, and the challenge there was to get those wounded soldiers uh, from that front line back to the rear. And uh, at Passchendaele, uh, there was a breakdown really in the evacuation system that had worked fairly well at, for instance, at Vimy Ridge in April of 1917 or the Titanic Battle of Hill 70 in August of 1917. But here there were too many wounded soldiers. The mud was too deep. It would often take not four stretcher bearers, not six, but eight stretcher bearers to carry out one man working in teams because they had to travel over kilometers of this glutinous mud that would literally suck the boots off their off their feet. Um, and so, uh, you know, terrible decisions had to be made there. And I, I found these, this in the records. A triage had to happen where stretcher bearers would look at a wounded man and decide if he could be saved. And those who could not, they often left them there. Um, uh, because it, you know, if you, if it's going to take eight men, eight hours to carry out a, a wounded soldier, you have to, you have to know he's going to survive at the end. And those agonizing triage decisions occurred, um, I found throughout the war at different times from the frontline stretcher bears to the, uh, the doctors in the field ambulances or the casualty clearing stations. By 1918, both sides uh, really began to break out of this trench warfare. And I note that significant gains were made by Canadians and others in what is generally termed the 100 Days War. In your account, however, the price of this advance was very high. For the first time I realized the sheer number of combat deaths and injuries associated with the 100 Days War. Um, but it also appeared to me that the medical treatment and the Canadian Army Medical Corps had become a well-oiled machine by this time that saved many lives that would previously have been lost. Now, you've already alluded to why that was the case uh, previously, but there must have been some serious advancements in medical treatment and in logistics by that time, too allow for that. Yeah, you're, you're right, Greg. And, and those battles in 1918 opened up the battlefield and they caused all kinds of problems for medical units because for about three years, the lines had been fairly static. That's the trench warfare and the attritional battles. But as the advances begin to become quite significant, so the, the Battle of MEN on the 8th of August, 1918, where Canadians and Australians are the spearhead force, they advance about 12 kilometers on the first day and the medical units have to catch up to them to be able to care for all those wounded soldiers, about 3,000 killed and wounded soldiers on that day alone, just from the Canadians. And to speak to your point, yes, these great advances began to be made because the infantry and the artillery and, and tanks were working together. But even when you were winning on the Western Front, you're always losing. You're always losing soldiers. And so luckily, the advances up to that point had uh, allowed doctors to save more lives. They were actively doing blood transfusions uh, along the front. Uh, Georges Vanier, a future governor general, had his leg blown off in one of those battles. He was lying there dying, bleeding out. And they found him and they gave him a blood transfusion that saved his life. And he writes home to his mother, en français, you know, uh, this is what saved my life. And, you know, when I found that, I was quite amazed. 
Um, but other soldiers were saved uh, through amazing surgical care. Um, the x-ray, uh, I think I may have mentioned that earlier, but the x-ray becomes absolutely crucial for just as you would imagine, locating all of the slivers of steel and lead in the bodies of the soldiers and allowing surgeons to extract them. Um, the, uh, the disease, you know, the infections, they had a much better system of treating infections by 1918 as well, which largely involved cutting away huge swaths of flesh and irrigating wounds. It's, it's pretty hard stuff to read, and yet um, it's got to be there. And, and Greg, I'm sure you would agree that, you know, when we are engaging with the past, when we're writing about history, we have to write about it in all of its... I suppose it's it's warts and all um, the horror and the heroism, the 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 agony of of battle and of the strain of soldiers. In the book, I write about shell shock and the invisible wounds where where men uh, the war imprinted itself on them and they were uh, driven from the front and the care from doctors. Uh, you know, I, I've always felt we need to show. Uh, the face of battle. We need to understand what happens when we send men and now women into battle and the experience of combat, because it is a very foreign space for people like us who have not served in uniform. And uh, the two world wars are particularly, um, uh, you know, particular experiences for those who are fighting in a land campaign or for thinking of the Second World War uh, on the oceans or in the air as well. I know how hard it is to really estimate the number of deaths due directly to war, but it looks like there were something around 60,000 Canadian combat deaths. At the same time, 55,000 Canadians succumbed to the Spanish flu, H1N1, between the summer of 1918 and spring 1919. So this meant that soldiers returning to Canada, at least those who survived, came to find close family members dead in some cases. Have we fully appreciated the connection between and the impact of these two very much connected events in our historiography? It must have been agonizing. Imagine a soldier who survives three years of war and sees his comrades killed and then comes home to find his family decimated by by the flu. And that history is harder to get at because um, soldiers aren't really writing letters at that point. And that's where a lot of that personal information comes from. And I think it would be fair to say most Canadians had forgotten about the terrible uh, flu of 1918, 1919, that, as as you say, killed 55,000 Canadians. We were reminded of it in 2020, weren't we? I think it was in the news a lot. And there were a lot of parallels there. Uh, nobody in 2020 thought we would have 55,000 deaths. But, um, you know, we are we are close to that uh, now, I believe. And, you know, as as I wrote a few editorials for newspapers around that time, and I talked about what it seemed to me, the, the flu we were passing through in 2020 and 21 and 22 was very much like a world war, the mobilization of society. And, um, you know, some people accepted that. Some thought it was nonsense, but um, it seems to have been borne out fairly significantly 
insofar as the tremendous impact on society. And I wonder, Greg, a hundred years from now, when some future Tim Cook or some other person looks back on our time period, will the Spanish flu of 1918, 1919, will that be tied in a different way to 2020, 2021, and 2022? I'm not sure. One of the things that did strike me, um, Greg, was that we didn't build memorials to the fallen uh, of the Spanish flu, those killed by the flu. We didn't use the word, sacred word, like the fallen. They're simply people who died from the flu. Um, There is barely a memorial in this country to the 55,000 Canadians other than headstones. Um, But think of what we did for the First World War soldiers. We have Remembrance Day, the poppy. Uh, John McRae's work, which has resonated through generations, thousands of memorials built across this country. We have the Peace Tower. We have the National Memorial in Ottawa. We have Vimy overseas and countless other memorials. So we, we memorialized and commemorated one group, but we did almost nothing for the other, the, the flu victims. And I will be very curious. I, I thought for sure, Greg, in fact, that that the flu victims of 2020, 2021, and 2022, I thought we would have built a national memorial. But I I think I I would be wrong there. At least I've heard nothing about that. But I wonder, I wonder how we will remember the the war against the flu that we have passed through right now uh, in comparison to that which many generations ago passed through and which was largely forgotten. Well, Tim... I can't let you go without asking you this one question because it seems to be one of the more unique contributions of your book, and that is the use and misuse of the bodily parts of soldiers, especially their organs during the Great War. I was wondering if you could briefly summarize this story, and why do you think it has remained, at least until your book, such an unknown part of the story of the Great War? Yeah, thanks, Greg. And You asked me at the beginning of what motivated me to write this book, and I had given you a few answers, but there was another one, which was a a medical mystery that I was tracking down. I know, Greg, you have research topics that interest you. All scholars do. We have have always four or five books we're thinking about and gathering information on. For me, about 15 years ago, I was reading the letters uh, of a doctor and he revealed that they were doing autopsies behind the lines. And I thought, isn't that amazing? I did, had no idea that the hospitals were doing autopsies. And they were doing that to understand why soldiers died and if there was something they could do to, uh, to save their lives, to improve care. Uh, but he also seemed to indicate that they, he was removing a body part, an organ. And I thought, well, that just can't be. So I, I went to the National Archives and I began to research and I couldn't find any files on it. And I'm a pretty good researcher. I'm a former archivist. I spend a lot of time there. But every book I would write, I would go back and research that book and then always look for these files if they existed. And I didn't think they did, Greg. And But then I found them. I found them around 20, 2018. And they, they were shocking to me. And they revealed that there was a systemic program run by the British, fully supported by the Canadians, um, to uh, remove and harvest these body parts and organs and, and uh, bones for a future museum in Ottawa. And, and that, that really shocked me. Um, 
I understand how doctors learned at the time. You you have to use the body to understand and and we still have various teaching mechanisms like that today. And yet this had never been written about in our history books. It had been forgotten. I wondered what happened to these body parts when they came back to Canada. And I was able to solve that story uh, and others. And I, I, I raise a number of questions in the book as, as to um, what the doctors were doing and what they thought they were doing and, and how this might impact remembrance. And I'll just pose one here. There's a really good book for sale uh, uh, that listeners may want to pick up to understand a little more detail on it. Um, but, you know, if in the 1920s we engaged, as we've talked about, this great period of commemoration and remembrance and and almost sanctifying the fallen, um, building memorials across the country, talking about the sacred dead, how was it also okay that we had brought back parts of them uh, as, uh, as medical specimens? And I explore that in the book, and I, and I argue that it might shape our perception of the dead or the fallen, or perhaps that we can have these two very different ideas and, and make sense of them, as I try to do in the book, I suppose, uh, and yet, we we shouldn't we shouldn't um, uh, simply ignore the fact that uh, at least eight hundred body parts came back to Canada uh, after the war, and the meaning behind that. Well, Tim, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. My guest today was Tim Cook. His book, Lifesavers and Body Snatchers, Medical Care and the Struggle for Survival in the Great War, was published by Alan Lane, an imprint of Penguin Random House in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. Also, if you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 7th, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press Journal team.